Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 15th, 2022, the day after Valentine's Day. Uh, and it's been a day of difficult decisions, at least in terms of the content on my show. Uh, earlier today, uh, we talked about the difficult decisions facing the Spotify CEO in the context of the boycott uh, by artists like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young on Spotify as a consequence uh, uh, of the Joe Rogan stuff. I had uh, Eric Pleiner on my show, uh, who has a new book out, Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity and Empathy. We're all leaders of one kind or another, of course, not just on the corporate world, but also privately in a domestic context. Uh, last year, I had the very popular writer Emily Oster on the show. She's written a number of books about parenting, and her book is about how to parent. And she made the strange suggestion, I'm still not sure if I completely agree with her, of thinking of the family uh, as a firm, and I guess behaving like a CEO. So I thought it might be interesting to ask my guest today, who also has a new book out today called Anything But My Phone, Mom, uh, a book about raising emotionally resilient daughters in the digital age, whether we as parents of daughters should think of ourselves um, as running firms. Um, Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, PhD, uh, I'm going to call her Ronnie, but I have to give her her full title to begin with, is the author of Anything But My Phone, Mom, and she's talking to me from Norwalk, Connecticut. So, Ronnie, what do you think of Emily Oster's idea that we should run our families like firms and perhaps talk to our sons and particularly daughters, since that's what you've just written a book about, as if we were the CEO? Well, that's a very interesting question. I have to say an original question. I've never been asked that before. Um, and I'm a huge Emily Oster fan, and I've read some of her material. I'm not sure that I understand really the concept of, of running a family like a firm, okay? I, I don't believe that a family is a democracy either. I don't believe that parents and teens should have equal say in things. So I guess there is a sort of leader as you're talking about. But I do believe that young children and teens and adolescents need to be parented very, very differently. And by the time kids get to be around that tween and certainly teen age, it's so important for parents to have a more collaborative relationship with them, particularly when it comes to smartphones and social media, because parents are not usually the expert on this kind of technology. Well, we'll come to smartphones and technology in a few minutes, um, Ronnie. It's funny, I texted my daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, about this interview because um, I was curious as what she thinks um, one should do as a parent in terms of raising uh, what you call emotionally resilient daughters. And she said, don't talk about 
body image, which I'm sure is a is a fairly standard response. What I was really intrigued with in your book is, uh, like me, um, you bring in your daughter uh, in the book, uh, Anything But My Phone, Mom. Um, the introduction, I don't think, I guess it's not an introduction, it's a forward, is by your daughter. Uh, it's a curious choice, a very original one. Uh, I like it, Ronnie. Why did you get your daughter to write the forward? Well, I have to sell and tell you I didn't. Um, oh, she, she insisted on it? She, she volunteered. Um, and at first, I have to tell you that I said, oh, you're so busy. You know, I don't want to burden you with this. And then she kept asking and asking. And so I really thought that she really wanted to. She was very invested in doing it. And it was interesting because um, I had no idea that what she was going to write totally blew me away. And whenever anyone reads it, who knows her, which is only in the last few days since the book has been available, um, you know, everybody gets very emotional and so do I. But what's very interesting and I think is so helpful to parents is that I wrote my first book about mother-daughter relationships when my daughter was 15. And as you can imagine, that did not go over quite yeah, well. And the name of the book was <laughs> I'm Not Mad, I Just Hate You, which is another brilliant title, uh, Ronnie. Uh, a new Thank understanding you. of mother-daughter conflict, which uh, I certainly, uh, my daughter has said to her father and mother many times. Exactly. Um, and so to say that, you know, we struggled through her adolescence is an understatement. And, you know, I was thinking back then, you know, I would barely ask her a question because I was walking on eggshells all the time. She was very irascible. And it really gave me a lot of confidence, though, to write this book, because I think in the ensuing years, I've gotten the perspective that now that I wished I had had then. And not that my book is based on my own experiences. I interviewed a lot of mothers and teen daughters for this book, and I got a lot of very fresh input. But I have to say that my confidence in being able to be reassuring to moms was based on the fact that things had changed since I last wrote this book between my daughter and I. And it just continues to improve in ways that, um, you know, frankly, I could not have anticipated. So, so what year? Think, what year did um, uh, I'm not mad? This came out in 2000, right? It came. That's the paperback. The hardcover came out in 1999, which is yeah. so long ago. Which is still in print. Is, is prehistory. 1999. I'm not sure if the iPhone even existed. It probably no, it didn't. I was talking about pagers in this in this book. Yeah, which is really astonishing. And actually, I thought of your book at the weekend. I went to see a movie called Licorice Pizza, uh, which is a really good coming of age comedy drama about kids growing up in. I guess they're slightly older than kids, but they're adolescents growing up in Los Angeles. but the, the, the film is set in, again, in the pre-digital age, in the pre-iPhone age. And it's mm-hmm. really astonishing, Ronnie, isn't it? How the iPhone changes absolutely everything, not just the iPhone. Everything. Smartphones. Absolutely everything. And it was really the impetus for me wanting to write this book, 
because what I was seeing in my practice was that it was changing everything. It was changing everything about how families interacted with one another, how parents parented. I was seeing that it revolutionized really how teens learned, how they interacted with other people, how they communicated, and even how they learned. And I was seeing it, not just you know hearing about it from the teens that I was seeing in my practice or the parents, but I was actually seeing examples of it in my actual practice. I mean, I remember times when a student would um, call me and say, I've got to speak with you. It's really urgent. And I would say, okay. And so I would meet them in my office on a weekend, let's say, and they would plop down in their chair and immediately whip out um, a laptop from their backpack. And I would think, huh, what are you doing? And this one student told me, well, I, I would rather read you what I wrote in my blog. Um, and I forgot the name of it because it was a few years ago. I don't think it's around much anymore. But she actually read me something that was extraordinarily personal. But she had written about it in cyberspace, but yet she was having trouble telling her therapist whom she trusted. I mean, we had a long trusting relationship. Uh, just to jump in here, Ronnie, you are also, I mean, your day job is as a therapist. So you, and you focus mostly on teens. Is that right? Um, yes, I see a lot of teens. Um, I deal with a lot of women and women's issues, mother-daughter relationships and parenting. That's one of my hats. Yes. I mean, it's not possible these days to go about an hour without, if you're online, without coming across a piece about teen anxiety associated with social media. Was there such a thing, Ronnie, as teen anxiety before the iPhone? Did it exist? And how has it changed everything? Well, it definitely existed before. Because what I would say to you is that these age-old kinds of adolescent developmental issues, you know, have been around, of course, forever. And teen girls in particular have always been concerned with, as rightly so, about, you know, if they're being accepted by their peers, how they are appearing to other people. Are they considered attractive? Are they getting enough attention? Are they getting invited to, to things? As you know, as preteens go into teens, they, they're transferring their uh, affections from parents to, to their peers, and they if want they to feel socially accepted. What happens if they don't have friends? Well, that's exactly right. Um, and so if they're not feeling accepted, then there's a tremendous amount of, of, of social anxiety. Well, what's happened now because of technology is that in some ways things have improved and in some ways things have gotten worse. So the way that it's gotten worse, as you can imagine, is that nowadays, if a teen makes a mistake on social media or on the internet, it can haunt them forever. So if they send something to someone and they think that it's private and someone takes a screenshot and someone passes it along and disseminates it for all of cyberspace to see, they're humiliated. 
And it can really have grave, grave consequences in terms of their self-esteem, sometimes their willingness to even go to school. There's a tremendous amount of shame about it. And also, everyone has been speaking much more recently about comparisons. So teenage girls, you know, it used to be that they would go to school and they would be in the cafeteria or the gym and they would compare themselves to other students and sometimes unfavorably. You mean physically or intellectually or emotionally or everything? Everything. But nowadays, when young people can curate their profiles and, you know, airbrush their pictures and spend hours, hours, you know, refining their images and what they say and how they say it, then it's even harder for some teens, particularly the vulnerable ones who don't have a lot of confidence. It's hard for them to feel good about themselves. So that's the bad part. The good part, and I've seen this a lot, is that there are many students who had been kind of marginalized. They were really having difficulty they were kind of square pegs and round holes, perhaps in their schools. They didn't feel like they fit in anywhere among any particular group. And with the internet now, they're able to find communities online. Even if they have kind of niche interests, they can connect with other people or with causes. And so even the shyest and most awkward of teen, I find, can generally feel more connected online. So it's kind of a mixed bag. It goes both ways. Um, yeah. You wrote a book, Stress Sucks. Has generally, though, I, I take your point that it goes both ways, but has the smartphone compounded stress for teenagers? Is that the core issue you're seeing mostly in your office with kids coming in, especially girls? I would say that it's one factor, but it's by far not the only one. What I'm finding, and, and this is another reason why I interviewed so many students, is that there's a big change from my first mother-daughter book 20 years ago in the sense that teens today are much more aware of the world outside of themselves. They're extraordinary, in fact. I mean, they're dealing with so many different stresses for the first time in my 40 plus career, I am seeing students come into my office talking about politics or talking about current events like school shootings. Um, they're concerned about war. They're concerned about climate change. It's extraordinary. And all of these things are making it a very difficult world to live in. And even though I wrote this most recent book that was published today, mostly before the pandemic, you can imagine the anxiety that's been around since then. So yes, the, the cell phone is contributing in ways that I think are very neurobiological in nature. So anytime you're kind of waiting to hear notification that someone is thinking about you and communicating with you, there's going to be this kind of agitation, right? And there's a stress response to that. And so over time, this can really be very wearing on students. But again, that's really only one issue. There's so many things going on in the world right now. Yeah, that certainly are. I want to talk actually after the break about Greta Thunberg and this new, you, you talked about it earlier, much more of a sense of political activism. 
But very briefly, um, Ronnie, how has COVID changed everything? I'm sure it has. Again, every day there's a new piece about the impact of COVID on children, the fact that they stay at home more. We did a Valentine's Day issue with um, a, a cultural critic um, about the impact of COVID on relationships, sexual relationships between men and mm. women. But on in, in terms of the family and in terms of children's relationship and particularly daughters' relationship with their parents and their mothers, I'm assuming that COVID has had an enormous impact. Absolutely. It's actually had a more positive impact on family life than you might imagine. Now, on the one hand, of course, it's never just simple. On the one hand, you know, at a time when teenagers are supposed to be gaining independence and gaining autonomy, they're stuck with their parents, which is exactly the opposite of what they want. So, And we're stuck that- with them, right? <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs> Although I have to say that my 30, well, at that time, 33-year-old son who had been living in a different city for 10 years um, decided to come home for a year. And I felt like it was such a treat, you know, but I d- wouldn't have felt that way if he were 22 or 23. I mean, the fact that he was living on his own and his own person made it a lot of fun and we enjoyed a lot. We enjoyed it a lot. But um, no, if they're not old enough to kind of know themselves and feel comfortable in their own skin, then it's a nightmare. Um, But in any event, so that closeness, you know, when teenagers, in fact, were polled after or during the quarantine, one of the things they said was that they really liked the fact that they got to spend more time with their parents, which was quite an interesting finding. On the other hand, their anxiety is off the charts and they're anxious about all sorts of things. And well, I guess one of the things I think that's really important that's causing this anxiety, um, besides the fact that they're worried about getting ill, they're worried about making someone in their family who's vulnerable ill, either younger siblings who weren't able to get vaccinated or people who have underlying health conditions, all sorts of things like that. But the other reason I think that it's anxiety provoking is that this has been a very confusing time where the government has been giving out mixed messages. There's been a lot of controversy about whether the medical profession knows what they're doing. They're changing the guidelines all the time. And so I think that there's kind of a mistrust. among. Yeah, I think that uh, we don't trust Tony Fauci and we don't. Uh, trust our parents. Perhaps we don't trust our children. There is a crisis of trust. You even wrote a book uh, before the pandemic, Trust Me, Mom, Everything Else, Everyone Else is Going. I think the core to a good relationship between parents and children going both ways is trust. Maybe we'll talk about that after the break. We are talking with Ronnie Cohen-Sandra, the author of a a brand new book. It's out today, Ronnie. It's (laughs) called Anything But My Phone, Mom. It's particularly about tech and daughters. Ronnie, after the break, I want to come back and I want to talk about actually confronting smartphones, what we're supposed to do as parents, whether we should ban them, whether we should accept them, how to manage them in the home. So uh, we'll be back, everyone, after about a 60-second break with Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, the author of Anything But My Phone, Mom. Stay tight, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching, 
or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Ronnie Cohen Sandler, the author of Anything But My Phone Mom, a book about how to talk to daughters in the age of the smartphone. Uh, Ronnie, um, last year I had my old friend Tiffany Schlein, my Bay Area neighbor. Um, she has a, had a best-selling book, 24-6, about unplugging once uh, one day a week, uh, a, a kind of um, uh, a, a one day a week celebration of not using technology, a tech Sabbath or Shabbat. What? Do you think of that? Should we have very concrete rules like no cell phones once a week or no cell phones after 10 or no cell phones before breakfast? I think that it's up to parents to kind of set these guidelines according to the values that every family holds dear. And so if families value, and I hope they do, togetherness and being able to be kind of in the moment with each other and really listen to one another, then I would hope that they wouldn't have cell phones around when they were having dinner or when they were socializing together as a family. Um, and no, there's no one right or wrong for any family, but it, it really is important that parents kind of set these guidelines because I don't believe that devices are all bad, um, but they can be used badly and they can interfere with real life kinds of situations like being able to have face-to-face -face conversations with people, like being engaged and in the moment. And so parents really need to do this before giving kids access to these kinds of things. It's so much harder if they wait until after kids so are clear rules, unambiguous rules, rules that you're not going to change every 10 minutes and rules that I assume you as a parent also uphold. Because oh, yes. you hear this <laughs> criticism, oh, I'm not allowed to use my cell phone at dinner, but 
my mom or my dad, they're on it all the time. Oh, yeah. You can't be a hypocrite about it. You've got to walk the walk. Teenagers are infamous at being able to sense hypocrisy and it doesn't go well for them. But the one thing I want to comment on, Andrew, that you just mentioned about the rules shouldn't change. Actually, when it comes to teens and tweens, there are situations that arise all the time. First of all, that they're maturing. And so skills that they didn't have uh, six months ago, they may have now. New risks may have arisen. Family situations may have changed. So I think it's important that parents have ongoing discussions about all of these things. It's just like anything else that you allow your kids to do. The first time they go on a sleepover or when they're allowed to have a one-on-one -on -one date or when they're allowed to drive independently. You know, you're not just using a, a just any old age. Um, you're really assessing how mature they are, whether they have the skills to be able to manage that. And so if you're giving them a privilege, then you're also monitoring it to see how they're doing. And if you find that they don't have the skills and they're violating rules or they're using poor judgment, then you've got to step back and give them more supervision. So I think it's very fluid. I think it's something that evolves over time. Fluidity is an interesting uh, word, Ronnie. Um, next month, I'm, uh, I've got Jessica Wintish, a uh, very smart young novelist. She has a new novel out. It's actually coming out in paperback next month called The Fourth Child, um, which is about a mother and two daughters, very different daughters. Uh, one was adopted. Do you think that... And, and, and the different relationships between the mother and these two daughters. Do you advise parents treating children differently according to who they are? Or do you need consistent rules, regulations and manners when it comes to every child? Well, I believe that you have to parent each child in the way that they need to be parented. Children are not born the same. And if you have this mentality that everything has to be equal or fair, you're dooming yourself to failure as a parent. And you're also failing to recognize the individuality of each of your kids. So yeah, some kids, um, let's say they're tweens, some tweens will be going on TikTok and looking at cat videos, you know, funny memes that they're sharing with their friends. And another one will be, you know, trying to pick up guys, you know, who are five years older than she is. So each of those kids needs different guidelines and a different level of supervision. We also had um, Melinda Wenamoyer on the show uh, last year. She has a book out or she had a book out about how to raise kids who aren't jerks. Some people might say bringing up politically correct children, although I don't think she'd like that term. What's your take on that in terms of the moral education, especially when it comes to race and identity and all the sensitivities that increasingly dominate the world today? 
I think that's part of raising children. You know, you can't be blind to that sort of thing. And oftentimes I'm finding that it's teenagers who are trying to tell the parents about that. Many of the uh, interviewees talked about that. They talked about how their kids were coming to them and saying, mom, you know, that's not a, that's not a correct term. That's not PC. You can't refer to people like that. And the parents were you know, well-meaning, but feeling like things were changing so fast that it was hard for them to keep up. Yeah, what would you say to a parent? I've heard one or two stories of parents who don't like um, having to define themselves as he or she or her. What would you say to parents who engage in difficult conversations with their children on that? You know, it's a very individual thing. I think what's important when dealing with kids is that we have the respect for them that we want them to have toward us. And so if your kid comes to you and says, you know, I don't like that you're doing this, it behooves us to say, not be defensive about it, but to say, tell me, you know, tell me more about this. What bothers you about that? We have to be open to learning new things. We're not all going to feel equally invested in all of these things. And, you know, with 58, I think, new words to describe gender, we may not be on top of all of it, but we do have to change with the times and be aware of new things, not only because of parenting, but also because we want to be good citizens in the world ourselves. Ronnie, what about this danger of overparenting? Matt Feeney was on the show last year as well, warning us that our culture, particularly sort of upper middle class white culture, has unfortunately over-parented this generation of kids, which has made them uh, perhaps uh, a little indulgent and spoiled. Do we need to be careful of over-parenting? What does that term even mean? Oh, you're getting me started on something here. Yes, I have um, given many, many talks on this topic. And there's a chapter in this book, um, you know, dedicated to that as well. I think, I mean, we can talk about all different aspects of it in terms of a sociocultural kind of thing and in terms of kids feeling entitled. But I am talking about it from the sense that when we overparent our kids, um, you know, we're swooping in to save them from problems. We don't want the helicopters. That's the term helicopter. The helicopters, there's the snowplow parent. There are all kinds of terms for this. And it depends on at what point you swoop in. But the main thing is we're limiting our kids' abilities to grow and to develop skills for themselves. We're communicating to them I don't trust you to do this by yourself. You're not capable. You need me to swoop in and do this. And as a result of this, and I'm thinking specifically of emotional resiliency, which is why that's the subtitle of my book, I'm seeing all these students go off to college who are coming home because they can't make it in college, not because they're not smart. Should we let them come home, uh, Ronnie, or just force them essentially to stay in college and deal with it? They're not dealing with it. They're falling apart because they don't have the emotional resiliency. They can't solve problems on their own. They're getting overwhelmed by anxiety and depression. They can't function. Sometimes they they are just hiding in their 
dorm rooms and they're not eating, they're not turning in their work, they're not going to, to classes. I'm seeing more of this now in the last, I'd say, five to seven years than in the previous three decades. But they just can't leave home. Co yeah, they're being so. supposed to be about leaving home. Is it because they've mostly been overparented, spoiled, indulged? I don't know that I would use those pejorative words, but what I would say is that they've been scaffolded. So anytime there was an That's issue. That's a good term, them, scaffolded. That's a euphemism, if I've ever I've heard one, Ronnie. <laughs> well, I don't mean it as a euphemism. I really mean that they've been buttressed and supported. Um, you know, if a student, for example, isn't getting the kind of grades that parents think that they should get, they have a team of tutors. You know, they have all kinds of um, uh, modifications to their programs so that they can have extra time whether or not they need it. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of micromanaging going on here, and it's preventing students from figuring things out on their own. Your book, uh, Anything But My Phone, Mom, is about talking to emotionally, to, 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 to talking to daughters to make them emotionally resident, uh, not resident, <laughs> resilient, uh, not, certainly not resident. Um, <laughs> right, you don't want that. More about how to talk to teenagers. We had the best-selling writers Ned Johnson and William Sticks wrote on the show recently. They, they had a book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I mean, in some ways, it's a similar book to yours, but it's not just yes. for girls. Is there a different way, Ronnie, that we need to talk to girls than boys? Um, I don't know that there's a different way to talk to them, but I'm specifically sort of focusing on the mother-daughter relationship, which is a very, very interesting dynamic. And it's different from father-daughter relationships. It's different from father-son relationships um, and even mother-son relationships. And so I am finding that that is such an area of concern to mothers and daughters these days that I really wanted to talk about it in terms of all of these changes that have gone on in the culture, with technology, um, and help mothers and daughters specifically with that. Well, but I, I the mothers out the picture for one reason or other, and there's just the father. Does the father have to become the mother as well? Well, I believe that if there's only one parent, that parent kind of becomes both in my experience. And if the father is the main caretaker, then absolutely. I mean, this book really, I don't think is just for mothers. I mean, I think that some, some teenagers are being raised by grandparents, by aunts and uncles, um, by fathers. And I believe that there's a lot of information that can be used. Um, besides the mother-daughter relationship. But girls need mothers, even if they are fathers being mothers or grandmothers being mothers or stepmothers being mothers. They need that mothering, you're saying. They do. They do, and they look for it, especially as they're growing up. Because during the adolescent years, don't forget, one of the developmental tasks is figuring out an identity. And so having a female role model um, a maternal figure, if you will, is how teenagers decide who they want to be, who they don't well, want to be. They rebel against that teenage, that mother role model, that female role model, and they want to, and they can't deal with them, or they want to, don't want to talk to them. Then what? 
Well, I think that every parent will tell you that that's a fear that they have and they have to work through it. And what I feel like my job when I'm working with families is to help them to see what they can do differently to kind of address that rebellion, if you will, because oftentimes it doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, most kids want to have good relationships with their parents. They may want to be with their friends more, but when they come home, they want to have a peaceful atmosphere. They want their parents to like them. They want their parents to approve of them. So I find, and this is where working with teens for so many years is helpful, that they tell me what is really irritating them. They tell me why they don't want to talk to their mothers and fathers. And so I try to infuse a lot of that information in when I'm talking to parents, whether it's in person or whether it's through my books, is to help them to see where they can go, where they're going wrong and what they might change in terms of how they're approaching teens and how they're speaking to them or maybe how they're listening to them. Well, listening, I was going to ask you about listening. We have Jimena Vekoetshoa on the show last year. She has a wonderful new book out, Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. It's not about parenting, but just as kids learn, need to learn how to listen, so parents do too, right? More so, more so, because parents these days, we were talking about kids being anxious. Parents are anxious these days too. They're partly anxious because they feel like they're in over their heads when it comes to technology and smartphones and social media, but also they're anxious about the world and finances and jobs and you know all the things that people worry about. And so when they sit down with kids, what I'm finding is that when kids start talking, they're thinking about refuting what kids are saying or the perfect words that they should say next. They're thinking about what they need to say to make kids listen. And usually if they're not careful, if they're not really kind of self-aware and mindful, they're saying things that are, you know, we've all done this as parents. We're anxious and we blurt something out and it's really off-putting. And teens don't have a lot of patience for that. And so it's very easy for them to be put off, shut down, and stomp away. And so I try to help parents with the communication. And you're right, it's not just for parent-teen communication. Many of these things are um, techniques or strategies or etiquette manners, if you will, that we practice with other people. But when it comes to our kids, sometimes we take liberties and we treat them very differently and not quite as well as we would treat other people like friends or business associates. What about the et etiquette changing when it comes to, I mean, you raised the, the word etiquette, when it comes to different socio-cultural groups. Last year, I had the cultural theorist Gillian Hernandez on the show. Um, she has a new book out, The Aesthetics of Excess, The Art and Politics of Black and Latina Embodiment. It's about different ways of dressing with for, for young women in the Black and Latina uh, communities. Do you think that your book, because you're white and from Connecticut, up, um, up middle or upper class, does it apply across the board or, or, or do different communities... If you're black or Latina, for example, do you need to talk to your daughter differently and, and, you know, and have different standards, for example, when it comes to what you can and can't wear? 
I think that you always have to be aware of cultural differences. And it could be uh, regional differences. It could be cultural differences. There are absolutely different standards in different communities. And I advise parents always to be sensitive to that. And sometimes um, I, I interviewed a lot of uh, teens who were growing up in multicultural homes and um, or parents were immigrants and they were first generation Americans. And so that was another way in which they clashed. Um, but I do have to say that I don't think I'm the best person to judge whether parents from different communities, different racial uh, uh you know, different racially interest-oriented parents um, will get value from the book. I hope that they will. Um, will have I addressed all of their issues? No, probably not. You know, I've addressed the issues that I think I'm most comfortable with, and I'm an expert in. But I can't imagine that it's so different in terms of the way they speak to kids. Um, yes, there I might feel be like some... uh, Ronnie, I'm getting some free therapy here. Do I have to pay for this interview? <laughs> You're the second person who's asked me that. It's so my my pleasure to speak with you. <laughs> Uh, finally, let, let's end on a, an up note. It's, it's always too easy to worry as parents and children, you know, in our, in our age of COVID and global warming and so on. But you mentioned uh, environmentalism and the, 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 the uniquely social, collaborative and political nature of young people. Uh, Greta Thunberg, of course, comes to mind. A couple of years ago, I had a, a teenage woman, Hannah Tester, on the show who has, as a teenager, uh, taking on the plastic uh, industry when it comes to the environment. Uh, she has a rule of five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. There is something remarkable about this generation, isn't there? For all the anxiety and the social media and the smartphone use, this is a, a, a uniquely political generation. Andrew, I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, the last uh, chapter of the book, that's how I end, because I think that this generation has so many role models available to them. Amanda Gorman, for example, um, all of these or trendsetters or Greta. Yeah. Well, I mentioned her, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, I so mean, I many. love her. Blah, blah, blah. I think that's the best way to shut any parent. Yes. <laughs> That's right. So they have a tremendous number of role models and they're so caring even beyond their families, but their communities and the world at large. And so I'm very hopeful about this generation. I, I think I think the world of them. And so I am very hopeful and I don't in any way think that these challenges that parents are having and that teens are having around technology are insurmountable. I think that there's just as much good, um, if not more than bad that comes of these opportunities. Well, I'm sure, uh, Ronnie, you've calmed a lot of very worried parents down. Your book is essential reading for anyone with a daughter. Anything but my phone, mom, I'm going to get it for my daughter. Or maybe I won't get it for my daughter. I'll read it for my daughter. I'll pretend I didn't read it and then behave like <laughs> a better parent. Um, but thank you so much. Um, and congratulations again on the book. It's just out today. Anything else, Ronnie, uh, people might read in these strange times where young people are so anxious and also so energized? You know, 
I want to tell you what I've been finding. And it's not a particular book, but it's kind of a genre. And I'm finding that we all have a need for connection and doing things in person and doing things that are constructive and we can see results and also that are comforting to us. And so two things that I'm finding with my own kids and my grandchildren is that- How old are your grandchildren, by the way? Uh, 11 and two. Wow. The 11 one is a bonus granddaughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's my daughter's stepdaughter. And the two-year-old is my first you know, baby granddaughter. And I'm already, you know, even with my two-year-old, I'm doing that. I'm finding simple recipes, simple healthy recipes, and we're baking or cooking together and then sharing it with other people and eating it and being social. And I'm rereading some of my, you know, favorite books um, from childhood. Um, Some of them are a little too sophisticated for my granddaughters, but but doing those kinds of things, um, it's very, very comforting. So cookbooks for the family, I've invested in some of those and getting ready with a stack of books that were my kids' favorites that I think are good for any generation. Well, that's good advice. Congratulations on the on the grandchildren, Ronnie. Congratulations mm-hmm. again on the new book. Uh, it's just out today. Anything but my phone, Mom. Essential reading, I think, for any of us concerned with raising emotionally resilient daughters in the digital age. Love to have you back on this this, this issue, uh, Ronnie. As you know better than I do, it's certainly not going away. I need free advice, so uh, I'm going to have you back <laughs> on the show to talk more. I'd love to. Thank I'd you. I'd really so enjoyed much. this. Thank you.